We are go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. Greetings, my fellow galactic travelers, and welcome back to Planet 8. This is your mission commander, Larry, speaking to you from our hidden base. Chief Engineer Bob is here by my side, as always, in the command center, and circling Planet 8 in our orbital spy satellite is Reconnaissance Officer Karen. On this week's episode of Planet 8, we have friend of Planet 8, David Schechter, record producer, label owner, author, and so much more. David, welcome to Planet 8. Thank you. It is an honor being uh, on your podcast. <laughs> the honor is ours, sir. Let's kick it up to the satellite. Karen, what would you like to ask or talk or discuss with David? Well, there's just so many things, but I'll, I'll try to limit myself to, since we have only so much time. Um, I will say I first met David at uh, Monster Palooza many years ago, and I was um, amazed at the variety of soundtracks that David had available um, at the show. And we got to talking, and uh, David is quite the raconteur. Um, <laughs> but I remember uh, one of the things we had talked about he, because he had Creature from the Black Lagoon there, and I, I. The music from Creature from the Black Lagoon is so memorable. It's, even if, if somebody um, couldn't, you know, just call to mind the music, if they heard it, they would instantly recognize that music. And uh, we talked about it a little bit. And I wonder, um, David, if you could tell us a little bit about how you got into um, not only getting that music, but like all the music you got, you have a, an amazing amount of music. I would tell people, well, we're going to put up the links for Monsters Movie Music, but um, besides Creature from the Black Lagoon, you have things like, um, oh, uh, like This Island Earth and um, Tarantula, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Can you kind of give us some background about like, how did you get all these amazing um, soundtracks together? Well, I basically, you know, did what anyone in my position would do. I snuck into the studios and stole things when people <laughs> were looking. And uh, monstrous movie music was born. No, I um, I married uh, a very talented musician named Kathleen Maine, and she was a classical musician. And when we got married, we wanted to try to work together on something. Well, Katie is great at classical music, orchestral music, and I... I'm a writer who loves these movies. Katie was into things like, you know, the Bing Crosby, Bob Hope road pictures and White Christmas is her favorite movie of all time. So I had to convince her that giant spiders and uh, Devonian creatures are import more important than, than Bing and, and all that stuff. And uh, somehow I did. And we were friends with some people over at Warner Brothers. And I... They were wandering through the music library and I found some 
conductor scores. These are written manuscripts that the conductor actually used in order to conduct the music during the scoring sessions uh, to create the soundtracks for these movies. And I found the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms and them in there. And it just kind of hit me, wow, you know, maybe we should do something like this. We had a few friends in the film music business doing things like that, but they were from a previous generation and they were into Errol Flynn movies and things like that. And even though I love those, I, being a baby boomer, I was, you know, attracted to the monster movie. So that was kind of the start of it. The second ingredient was we were friends with Henry Mancini and mm -hmm. he was doing a concert at the Hollywood Bowl one time and I was going to interview him for some magazine. And we were backstage ahead of time and he had a conductor book for Creature from the Black Lagoon because Henry wrote part of the score along with two other composers. And when we were listening to it at the Hollywood Bowl that night, it was so different from the other music that was, you know, the baby elephant walk from Hatari and Charade, <laughs> kind of the pop stuff that Henry was uh, po was popular uh, doing. And um, he did this suite from Creature from the Black Lagoon, and it was just mesmerizing hearing that really serious dramatic music playing through the night. And after that, you know, went home and said, oh, my gosh, we, we've got to try to do something with this type of music. And that was kind of how the general idea was born. Well, it's funny. You just don't think of like Henry Mancini. That's not the name that comes to mind when you think of monster music. <laughs> It was funny because when we recorded our first two albums over in Poland, and these are really great musicians uh, who were playing in the orchestra, about 70 of them, and they're all classical musicians. They hadn't done film music uh, much, if at all. And we, through our translator, we were trying to let them know about the music they were recording. Like, this is from Gorgo, Big Monster, Little Baby, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and they were, uh, you know, they were really interested in because they enjoyed playing the music. But they didn't know any of the composers' names, except for one, Bronislaw Caper, who did them, because Caper came from Europe. So they were familiar with him. But I mentioned to them this next piece we're doing was by Henry Mancini. And we were met by, you know, a sea of faces like, huh? And I was really surprised because I thought that Mancini would be this international name. So then what I did is I started to sing a little bit of Moon River. And as soon as I did about five notes, they all started nodding. They knew the song. They didn't know the composer, hmm. which I found just fascinating. You know, it's like music is the universal language. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. you know, it's amazing. And, you know, speaking of Baby Elephant Walk. I got to say, Baby Elephant Walk and the theme to Casino Royale are two bits of music that whenever I hear it, it's just the earworm for days. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but um, yeah, so so mostly soundtracks then that you did for uh, the Monstrous Movie Music label never had a previous release, is that correct? They, there weren't really recordings that were released on vinyl or LP back in the day? Yeah, that was one of the things that we focused on because doing this when we were doing our new recordings hiring an orchestra and using conductor and reserving a hall you know it costs so much money we had to make sure that when we came out with this somebody didn't get into the studio find the original tapes and put them out because we couldn't deal with the competition it was you know, it's hard enough to reach people with this kind of stuff in the first place when there's two versions of it no matter how good yours is you're probably losing 50% of your profits, assuming you are going to get any profits. And um, so knowing people in the studio, we checked with them. Do you have the original tracks for them? Do you have Beasts from 20,000 Fathoms? Do you have this, that, or the other thing? That stuff had been long gone, lost, destroyed in floods, fires, whatever. So nothing we put out had ever been released before, and we felt confident that nobody would be putting it out. And now we're 20 years later, and nobody has put out the stuff that we've put out. So in fact, there, there had been a couple of recordings of some of Creature's music, including the suite that Mancini did. Uh, he put it out on an album in the late 90s, and he also did a bit of Tarantula, and a bit of it came from outer space. So we recorded other music that he wrote for those pictures, so there wouldn't be uh, any overlap there. It's almost uh, to me like finding, you know, the Grail or or the the lost Ark, you know, something that we uh, the public haven't heard 
outside of watching the film, uh, you know, ever. I mean, something that's never been released. And, and that's part of the fun of what you've put out there is we get to discover it, you know, for the first time and share it with, you know, friends and family. I mean, it must have been so exciting uh, discovering. Um, has there ever been a piece that uh, music that you uh, were looking for and just could not locate um, going through the studios or, or any, anywhere else? Yeah, there are a million of them. Mm. Uh, so much because written scores and the parts for the orchestra to play and all that took up so much space. Mm -hmm. And the studios just threw a lot of it out. You know, MGM was notorious for there's supposedly some landfill, I think, near a golf course where they dumped, Jeez. you know, all of this stuff. So there were so many things where we either couldn't find the written scores or we couldn't find recordings of. And basically, you know, you search for them for a while, they don't turn up and you just forget about them because it bothers you too much to realize that nobody's ever going to record uh, this music. Regarding Creature from the Black Lagoon, I was trying to get in touch with composers or their estates to find out if they were still alive and if they might have an archive somewhere. Yeah. And one of the people that I wanted to try to reach was Herman Stein, who is kind of a legendary name, but nobody knew much about him. And apparently he had died like 10, 15 years earlier, according to, I believe Variety published his obituary. Well, it turned out Herman wasn't dead. And in fact, huh. He ended up becoming my best friend for about the last 12 years of his life. He lived to 93. Oh, wow. But he did so much work. He and Henry Mancini started about the same time. Herman started a year before in 51, Mancini in 52. And they would do bits and pieces of pretty much all of the Universal movies of the 50s. So they were doing Audie Murphy westerns. They were doing Francis movies. They were doing... Uh, the horror movies and Herman had written music for Tarantula, The Land Unknown, almost all of This Island Earth, music for Monster on the Campus, on and on and on and on. So he's like a legend. And um, it was very important for me to try to do some of his music. Uh, and we we're very happy that Herman uh, loved what we did. And he was always asking for comps, which we were happy to give him, but he was asking for so many of them through the years. And Herman had outlived so many of his friends. He was always calling me up, telling me, oh, guess who died this week? Moisha from Philly, you mm -hmm. know, who's my best friend when I was four and everything. So one time I said, Herman, what are you doing with all of these comps we keep giving you? And again, I was really happy to give them to him because it made him so much happy. Well, it turned out he was so proud of the, the music that he had written that he was passing them out all over town. So when he would go to the grocery store, he would like tip the, the bag person one of his monster CDs. <laughs> so I think that's why we didn't sell too many of the ones with Herman's music. He had basically given them away to everybody in the Los Angeles area. He'd saturate in the market. Exactly. I, I can imagine the shock of finding out that you're still alive after Variety uh, posted something, uh, an obituary for you. It must have been kind of a shock. Well, Herman never called them up to complain because <laughs> he was kind of, he was a hermit. He was Herman the hermit. And he kind of, he had a rough time in Hollywood. They didn't treat him very well. And oh, Herman okay. Herman held grudges. So he was kind of happy having people thinking he wasn't alive. And it, it took quite a bit to get him to come out of his shell and to do mm. TV appearances and things like that. But I think he liked it and in some respect because he felt that he had been forgotten and pretty much he had been forgotten because he almost never got credit on his pictures that was basically stolen by the head of the music department for universal and that was one of the reasons he had a rough career after the studio system broke because people didn't know who he was because his name was barely out there wow yeah i mean it's it's amazing what happens to some of these people i mean isn't wasn't it yvette vickers that passed away in her house and they didn't find her for like three weeks or something or I yeah, yeah. Fortunately, saw that didn't mail piling up or something. Um, yeah, that was a pretty grisly end there. But uh, yeah, I mean, for us, you know, that watched all these movies and you know appreciate all these stars and things, and then you realize that Hollywood as a whole doesn't quite appreciate them the same way. And and yeah, I mean, a lot of them did go off to be hermits or just forgotten or whatever, but. Yeah, Herman was uh, was lucky in some respect when when Universal shut down 
one of his best friends who was also became my one of my best friends, Irving Gertz, composer who also mm-hmm. did music for It Came From Outer Space and The Leech Woman. And he did a lot of stuff for 20th Century Fox, like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And he did Land of the Giants and things like that. Well, he knew Lionel Newman, who was the head of the music department over at Fox. So when Universal basically shut down their film scoring department, he got some work there and he convinced Lionel to hire Herman. So Herman ended up working on Lost in Space. He did the famous family theme there and his music is in like in every episode and some of the other series too. So that helped Herman a lot. I wonder if they knew at the time that they were creating, um, you know, such fond memory, Uh, you know, you get a call and it's like, we'd like you to help us with the film. Oh, what's the name of the film? Uh, Leech Women. Oh, okay. (laughs) We're working on a TV show called Lost in Space. At the time, you don't know or don't realize, or I would would assume they didn't realize what they were doing would have such a broad impact decades later. I'll tell you a couple funny stories about that regarding Herman is... When I told him I wanted to record some of his music, he asked what music, and I said, well, Creature from the Black Lagoon, it came from outer space, Tarantula. And he said, why do you want to do that monster stuff? Do my Westerns. And I said, Herman, nobody gives a damn about your Westerns or anyone's Westerns. They, they want killer creatures from, you know, destroying cities. But in his time, back in the you know 40s and 50s and everything, the Westerns were more prestigious. These science fiction movies, the horror movies, they were just programmers. You know, they were B pictures just being cranked out. Nobody thought they would have a life, certainly, you know, two years down the line, let alone 50 years down the line. And when I first asked Herman, I told him I wanted to do some music from the mole people. And he said, did I do that? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Because for him, he scored, he only did about five pieces for the picture. It probably took him three or four days. But that was over 50 years ago. So, you know, it's like if I asked you, what were you doing 50 years ago or 40 years ago uh, in late August, you would have no recollection. It was just another job for him. Mm -hmm. He saw the scenes. He wrote the music. Then he's on a Francis movie or then he's on an Abbott and Costello movie, something like that. And even regarding Creature from the Black Lagoon, when I told him we wanted to do a lot of music from Creature, he said, nobody remembers that. I said, Herman, it's like the last iconic monster, you know, ever in motion pictures. And he didn't believe me. So I actually drove him down to, there's a store in Burbank called Creature Features that had a big painting of the Mm, creature, the gill man in the front. Mm, When I showed it to him, his eyes got big. it, It was like tears almost started to, to fall because he couldn't believe that anyone remembered the stuff he had worked on. Mm. Yeah, it's it's similar to I I've written a, a fair number of articles on comic books from the seventies and I'll you know interview some of these guys and you try to talk to them like you say it's stuff 40, 50 years ago they were just moving from one job to the next. And uh, you bring these art, these, well, you know, you did these issues of Captain America. And like, I, I did. I, you know, <laughs> you guys want to know about this? Really? Um, but then once you get them going, they're kind of like thrilled that like, oh, you really, you're going to write an article about this? Really? Oh, okay. Um, they can't always remember everything they did, but then they, there's sort of this pride, like, wow, people really want to know about it. It's like, yeah, they do. So. One of my best friends uh, was Colleen Gray, who was the leech woman. And she was in a lot of really prestigious pictures, uh, you know, with big stars like Tyrone Power and John Wayne and Bing Crosby. But I'll tell you, when when I took her to conventions and things like that, so she could, you know, sign photos and everything, people just showed up with, uh, you know, the leech woman this, the leech woman that, and those are the photos they wanted. And she was in The Vampire, too. Oh, Oh, this is great. I'm getting a phone call and I'm going to stop it. That is my ring. T- my ringtone is from the brain from planet Aris. <laughs> it's, it's a perfect segue because my best friend is Joyce Meadows, who starred in the brain from planet Aris. And the same thing happens with Joyce when we go out there. She was in a lot of Western. She was in a lot of 
you know, film noir, a lot of TV stuff, Alfred Hitchcock and uh, Perry Mason, all that. The brain, that's what they want, the brain. And, you know, and Julie Adams the same way, good friend of mine, Creature. And Julie has said, you know, when I die, they're going to say Julie Adams, a creature from the Black Lagoon. She's one of the great actresses, actors of her time. People don't know that because, first of all, she was so beautiful and, you know, had that figure. And, you know, it's this typical Marilyn Monroe type thing where they don't realize what a good actor you are. Mm -hmm. But also she's associated with a monster movie and Joyce is associated with a monster movie and uh, a new Barbara Rush. And people wanted things when worlds collide, it came from outer space. Those are the things that had the longevity. Yeah. Yeah, you don't see a lot of conventions for Western movies or, or you know, romance films. It's it's the monsters, and that's that's what the people, that's what we uh, we like. So. Well, I, th I think the thing with yeah. the monsters is, you know, they were sold for a while there, practically given away to TV stations before they gained more popularity. Basically, so yeah, they were on the Creature Features shows, and they were on in the Saturday afternoons, and they were on... You know, late night, and that's pretty much what a big, large generation of people grew up watching. You know, there were westerns on, but there was a big proliferation of uh, of the monster movies and sci-fi movies, and, and yeah, I mean, you kind of hold on to your youth, and that's a big part of it. And I think that's why they kind of uh, just kept going. Especially since, you know, due to either the special effects, the makeup, the escapism mm -hmm. factor, is we watched those movies every time they were on. Because you didn't know when it would show up again. You know, so you stayed up till 2.30 in the morning to watch Kronos, not knowing if you would ever see it before you died. Well, you did because you played it like five <laughs> times a year. But the point was, you know, you had never seen this giant robot, you know, wreaking havoc around the earth. So you watched it every time. And the more you saw it, the more it kind of became hardwired into your brain where those things just became a part of who you were in some you know in some sense through sheer repetition yeah. a, a funny thing when you were talking about yeah there aren't western conventions well there are some western conventions and what's funny is i went to one with joyce meadows and julie adams and julie's son mitch danton a good friend of mine a few years ago we went to one it was out in uh near phoenix and everyone went up to these people going uh looking for the creature from the black lagoon <laughs> at a western convention but what was great was i set up my monstrous movie music uh table next to them and people were coming up to me going you got any hootenanny music <laughs> like, oh, I got monster music nobody wanted monster music but they wanted the stars of the monster movies well you know it's funny because uh speaking of creature from black lagoon and westerns i actually found a shirt online from austin texas which uh, there was a saloon there, and it was called the Black Saloon. So I said, the creature from the Black Saloon. And I had the creature <laughs> with a cowboy hat and six shooters on his sides. And I had to get that. I just thought that was pretty cool. I but that would have been perfect for that convention. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's something out there for everyone. Uh, you know, I guess it depends on when you grew up. My mother's a huge fan of the Lone Ranger and the Cisco Kid. It, you know, so anytime those programs would come on or, or a movie we'd, we'd end up watching them now she loved all the the monster movies and everything as well uh and karen can attest i forget was it pasadena we found out that there's a mr belvedere fan club out there karen oh yeah that Do you was recall? really <laughs> unusual <laughs> so hey different strokes for different folks but uh I'm sure there's different strokes conventions too. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I'm sure. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And I, I'm I'm friends with Lydia Cornell, who's in Too Close for Comfort. Oh yeah. And they have you know nutty fans. I'll tell you, I take great pride in telling Lydia I've never seen an episode of her show. So, uh, <laughs> which I can't wait to to have her tune into this one. But I remember um, uh, Francine York was had done um, a Bewitched. Uh, you know, certainly Elvis conventions, bewitched mm. conventions. And there's, yeah, there's just thousands of crazy people out there. I mean, I think it makes more sense to, you know, be obsessed with uh, the monolith monsters than bewitched, but that's just me. <laughs> well, is, right isn't, it the, isn't it the Brady Bunch house that's going up for auction pretty soon? It, it sold already. I oh, did it sell? Who, yeah, okay. I forgot who bought it, but uh, one of the... Probably somebody with three or four kids. 
Yeah, yeah, and it was because the inside doesn't. The inside was all set, so the inside doesn't look like yeah. it did in the in the program or whatever. But does uh, it come with the uh, astroturf in the? In the <laughs> <laughs> that, that I'm not sure of. I think I, I think I asked my parents if we could have one of those yards so we wouldn't have to mow the lawn so often. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this: in in going to all the conventions. Uh, you know, uh, what are some of the most memorable, uh, other than the uh, request for Hootenanny music at the, the Western Convention, one of the most, or a couple of the most interesting things that have happened at, at a particular convention, other than like, or maybe even at Monster Palooza? Some of them are like when I, I would help a lot of these actresses because a lot, you know, they had all outlived their husbands because, you know, we men don't last as long as women do. We're not as tough. So I would help, you know, handle the business aspect for them uh, at a lot of these. And what I was amazed at is like people would show up from out of the country carrying, you know, like a, a two sheet poster. And they had flown thousands of miles because they wanted Colleen Gray to sign the thing. Mm. And you think, oh, my God, you know, the poster is probably worth thousands of dollars and and the flight and this and that. And they're just absolutely thrilled. That's the main reason they went to this thing. And it's like, mm. oh, my God, these people are doing much better financially than I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the one of the funniest things was I was at a, um, a convention and there's just no names, but there's one person in town who doesn't particularly like me. No, I'm sure there's more than one, but this, this one is very vocal about it. And, um, it has to do with the fact that I re represent a lot of these composers. Uh, they had outlived their, uh, lawyers and their accountants and things like that. So they would call me up once in a while and say, David, NBC wants to use my music on Saturday night live. Can you talk to them about it? So I negotiate licensing and that kind of stuff mm -hmm. for them. And one, one of these people, it was, uh, let's just say he was doing some things illegal that had to do with people I was representing. So I got him in trouble because he needed to be got in trouble because he was ripping people off, including mm -hmm. myself. Well, he didn't like that, apparently. And uh, one time I was at a convention and I'm just walking. Oh, I, I was getting some cookies or something for Julie, uh, Julie Adams. I was helping her out or sitting next to her or whatever. And I'm coming back and this guy started screaming at me above the crowd. And I don't want to say the words he was saying. He's just really <laughs> furious with me. So when I got over to Julie's table. I sat down next to her and she looked at me and said, is everything okay, David? I said, no, there's just some jerk who's just kind of being nasty to me. And she said, you point him out to me. I'm going to go over there and I'm going to tell him to leave you alone. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Julie. You know, it's like she, it would have been so wonderful, wouldn't it, to be berated by like the kindest woman in the universe. <laughs> you you stop that now. You, you behave. <laughs> So the, the memories like that are 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 a lot of fun. That is funny. And then oh, and then also we did the thing where we had these little um, for Joyce somebody made some little brains for her, really nice <laughs> little brains with with little <laughs> eyes on it. I should send you a few. And they're about an inch, about an inch by you know whatever three quarters of an inch, and they're going to be keychains. But unfortunately. Uh, instead of like a metal ring that was needed on, it was all done in plastic. So these beautiful little brains and we were giving them to people, but their keys kept breaking the little ring. So eventually, you know, it's like if somebody bought two posters or signed photos, Joyce would give them a complimentary brain. So we have to tell them, uh, oh, here, you get a free brain key ring, but you can't use it as a key ring. <laughs> So that was kind of so. I'm sure there's a lot of these little brain non-key rings sitting around on desks somewhere. But I'll, uh, I'll uh, Joy still has a few left. I'll I'll ask her to pull out a few and send them to you. Yeah, those but, rings are good just to hang them up. Yeah, don't don't put them on your keys or you will you'll be locked out of your car before you know it. Was there any soundtracks that you really wanted to do that you just could not find any elements for? Um, the ones I really wanted to do. We could find the elements, but either in terms of the original recordings, uh, it was just going to be too expensive dealing with the studio because you had to license the master rights. They technically owned the actual physical recording, even though they didn't possess it. I had it, you know, from tapes or whatever from the composers. 
you have to license it from them, and it was just too much money. Uh, one example was um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which another mm. label eventually put out. But unfortunately, they put it out like 20 years after I wanted to do it. And I think it would have done a lot better 20 years earlier because there were more of us alive back then. Mm. It, it come out, it apparently didn't do very well because the, the market is diminishing because we keep growing older, I, you know, for some reason. <laughs> but um, the other thing it was similar was the expense of it was I love the Universal movies of the 50s. And, you know, if I can strike it rich and I'm trying very hard, um, you know, I love the music for Revenge of the Creature, Creature Walks Among Us, The Mole People, the entire score, The Monolith Monsters, The Deadly Mantis, Cult of the Cobra. My God, I can go on and on and on. But none of the elements exist for that, except I have the uh, the sketches written by the composers. So we would have to do new recordings of it. And I would love to do it, but people don't realize the hundreds of thousands of dollars that something like this would cost. And, you know, and, you know, you folks in the studio and me, we're pretty much the only ones left. <laughs> if there's any rich investors listening to the podcast right now. <laughs> Yeah. Here's your yeah, chance. They've been, they've been listening for the past 20 years and none have ever called me. You have to start a super Kickstarter. Yeah, exactly. Kickstarter. Incredible Shrinking Man is a wonderful score. And uh, oh. yeah, uh, Irving Gertz and Hans Salter did um, most of it. And it's just really wonderful music. But, uh, you know, un until until we either have a rebirth of baby boomers or, you know, as I said, I strike it rich it's really hard to, to get back your investment on these things. Well, I mean, it's really up to us old folk to pass this along to our kids <laughs> yeah, and you're, grandkids. You're, you're and entirely whatever, to you know? blame. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, I've actually passed it on to my daughter, so uh -huh. everybody else is to blame. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to start procreating tomorrow just so I can... <laughs> And we went a little bit too far. So anyway, <laughs> of the of the soundtracks you have put together, do you have any particular favorites? Well, I would say, you know, favorites for, for different reasons. Um, I'm really proud of The Creature because um, that and Tarzan, which is on there, and The Alligator People by Irving Gertz, which I love, that was a really, really great recording we did then. And I think it holds together as an album really really well i was i was actually you know in my delusional state thinking we should get nominated for a grammy from that because it, it's really really i think one of the great soundtrack recordings that have been done not that i don't like the other ones um uh i do like the music we did from tarantula because it was so difficult tarantula was uh scored by mancini and herman stein but a lot of it was reused music from earlier Universal Pictures. Hmm. So we had to find all the music from all these other pictures, Westerns and uh, romances and things like that. And that was similar to uh, on our Harryhausen album, 20 Million Miles to Earth had original music by Misha Bakalenikov, who was the head of the studio uh, music department. But it also used a lot of music that they re-recorded from their library, music by Max Steiner and George Dooning and Daniel Amphitheatroff and people like that. That was another really, really difficult thing to pull off because we had to find, you, you couldn't just find a folder somewhere in a studio or an archive that said 20 million miles to earth or tarantula. You had to find all the individual films like Ride Clear of Diablo and, um, Bend of the River and all this stuff from Betty Davis movies, et cetera, et cetera, in order to put your suite together. So it has nothing to do with how much I like the music, although I love the music. The fact that we were able to pull this off was was really kind of something. And, you know, I don't think I could do it now all these years later. I don't think I have the stamina. But um, my, my wife, Katie, did just this amazing job on this kind of stuff. And just really, really uh, happy we did it because we knew that nobody else was as stupid as us that they would ever do this. <laughs> so we had to do it right because we knew this was the, the one shot we had. You know, and I, I, I was hoping we could do similar things with the other Columbia pictures, use the same music library but different pieces. The Werewolf, Our Beloved Giant Claw, uh, mm -hmm. used that library. And uh, Creature with the Atom Brain, uh, I don't know if I said the werewolf. I probably did. Mm -hmm. But 20 Million Miles to Earth, Earth versus the Flying Saucers. 
And, um, you know, those kind of pictures all kind of borrowed from similar sort of things, you know, from the 40s, detective movies, film noirs, thrillers, all that stuff. We, we think it's giant monster music, but a lot of it isn't. You know, a lot of the creature music that we love came from other movies, you know, movies having to do with sunken treasure, westerns, etc. But we've seen it so many times associated with the creature that if, you know, somebody made us swear that, yes, this is creature music, we would. But it isn't. It just became that over time. So, David, when you say you had to find this other music, were you just listening to it and then matching it up, like figuring out what other movie it had been in? Or did you have something written so you knew where it came from? It depended on the film and it depended on the studio. Universal was good in that they would, uh, in parentheses, there's a cue sheet that for each soundtrack that tells the studio, you know, who wrote the music, who publishes the music, meaning who, who owns the legal rights to it, how much of the music is in the picture, et cetera, et cetera. So Universal, if they used, uh, it could say main title, and then in parentheses, it would say uh, something like, um, like I said, Ride Clear of Diablo. So you knew, oh, that was the main title from Ride Clear of Diablo used in this picture. Columbia was not that way at all. They would just have the original name of the cue. So sometimes you get a cue. One of them was called Pa Warns Rudolph. And, you know, as I think I said in my liner notes for 20 Million Miles to Earth, there was no Pa and no Rudolph in that Harryhausen movie. <laughs> so there was a lot of going through just lists of films. Uh, I'm not even sure the IMDb was, you know, was as good as it is today, trying to figure out what some of these things were. You know, sometimes you could guess they were Westerns and you knew the composer. So you would say George Dooning and then maybe it would say, Oh, a funny example was for 20 Million Miles to Earth, the piece that opens the picture, you see this starry uh, starscape. And I think it's like from Day the Earth Stood Still, the artwork of the Andromeda Galaxy or something like that. And you hear this beautiful harp music. And the um, name of the cue on the cue sheet was called Heave In, H-E-A-V-E-N. So I spent, I don't know how many months trying to find some movie where somebody might be heaving something into something. <laughs> and, you know, and then I would get the movie from a video place or a friend who had a copy and I would listen to the entire film trying to find that music. Didn't find it, didn't find it, didn't find it. One day, I don't know why it happened on that day. I'm looking at the cue sheet again and all of a sudden it hit me. I said, it's not heaving, it's heaven. <laughs> it was very faint and there was dirt on the cue. You know, you couldn't tell. It was a copy of a copy of a copy. So it was like, oh, my God, it's it's not that at all. Well, it turned out that it was um, from the movie Here Comes Mr. Jordan. <laughs> I went I went and looked at, OK, what Columbia movies might have had something to do with a dead person or heaven? And I saw that and said, oh, my goodness. And I got the movie, put it on, heard that piece of music. And that was the end of that detective part of my life but to answer your question yes yeah, some of it was really really difficult and i'm very disappointed there's something like i think 89 or 98 i forget what cues in in 20 million miles to earth there's one of them i've never been able to find and before i die i would not to record it just to say i know where every piece of music came from in that <laughs> picture just to have the satisfaction exactly Otherwise, my soul will, will not be restful and I'll haunt the earth. <laughs> Man, that's a lot of work. And, and when you said detective, that was exactly what I was thinking. I was like, wow, that's that's really like detective work. You're having to, you know, take these things, they're clues. You're trying to piece together, like, what type of movie would that be? And where would I find that? You know, you've got like the general time period so you can kind of track it back. But yeah, that's that sounds like. And I'd be calling people and I'd be saying, you know, do you know, a, do you know a character named Janie from a, you know, from a Universal movie in the 40s? And, you know, that kind of. Wow. Stuff. Yeah. And sometimes you stumble on it. I was listening to your uh, CD of uh, Monster to Challenge the World. And all of a sudden this one cue came up and I'm like, oh, that's the cue from when Godzilla's attacking the train in King Kong versus Godzilla. <laughs> Which is funny because I, I, at the time I did that album, I didn't know the Japanese movies as well as I do now. I'm a right. big fan of them. But I had a friend who was obsessed with them, and he had told me about that piece of music mm -hmm. and everything. And, and I now know 
why it got in there because the American version used libraries and one of the libraries uh, was, um, what's his name, uh, Herschel Burke Gilbert who orchestrated uh, Monster That Challenged the World. Well, he had music from, uh, from a bunch of pictures. So obviously he was asked to supply some music when Universal did their Americanized version of that. Yeah, they went to a lot of trouble because they just pretty much got rid of the Ifukube score and uh, suddenly, you know, had all this different library music in there. They but, didn't uh, think that that American audiences would, you know, would understand the the Japanese music, which is just so bizarre because, you know, those scores mm -hmm. are absolutely fabulous, but they felt that they needed American music, you know, which doesn't make sense to me. Getting back uh, to Harryhausen, I, I have a personal question. Did you ever come close to finding music from a Valley of Guanji? No, I, I certainly look for it. You know, it was released finally, like about two months ago, three months oh, ago. Oh, really? Yeah, by the Entrada label, okay. I-N-T-R-A-D-A, mm -hmm. up in Northern California. And I haven't bought it yet, but it's at the top of my list. Yeah. Um, at the time, Ray had given me as he had given a bunch of people just this like ninth generation cassette with about 20 minutes of music. And it was just <laughs> screechingly hard to listen to. Um, and I was friends with, uh, still am friends with uh, Susanna Maras Tarjan, who's the daughter of Jerome Maras. Mm. And she had the written scores at the time, but we didn't, I kind of had a feeling because it was like a Warner Brothers Seven Arts. Mm. I thought that the music would be out there somewhere. So I didn't want to do a re-record on that. And it finally turned out, turned up, you know, all these years later. And I hear it's it's pretty darn good. Oh, I'll have to check it out. And I have to say, I love the uh, CD you put out with uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Tarzan, and Alligator People you, re people, uh, you referenced earlier. Um, back to, to uh, Ray Harryhausen, Bay Area Film Events has the Dynamation Celebration coming up. Um, any uh, uh, Ray Harryhausen music that you... you uh, uh, wanted to put out and uh, other than Valley of Guanji uh, came close, but for whatever reason, it just didn't manifest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we did Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, it was originally, you know, it was a low budget film that mm -hmm. then got distributed and redone by Warner Brothers to some extent. Then they brought in composer David Patolf, who did that great score for it. But originally it was called Monster Beneath the Sea, I believe. Mm. And it had a score by Michelle Michelet. Uh, and I knew Michelet, or I got to know him slightly. He was like a hundred at the time and he lived a couple of years after that. Wow. But I wanted to find that original score that had been thrown out. Ray was quoted as saying he didn't really like the score, but still historically, I think it would have been wonderful to, to record a few cues from that. But uh, he, he threw out I guess all of his film music and kept his classical music, you know, which so many of these composers did thinking that was the important music, but nobody wanted to record that. They mm -hmm. wanted his, you know, with Michelet did the Tarzan music um, and he did the monster beneath the sea. I think he did Captain Sinbad, which is another mm. fun film, but I never could find the monster beneath the sea music. And I think that would have been, uh, I remember I was looking for the Tarzan music, uh, this is before I went down to his archive and his uh, archivist called me up and said, oh, we found the Tarzan music because at the time we were doing our Creature album and we wanted another, it was, and other jungle pictures. So we thought it, since it's a jungle theme thing uh, album, we needed some Tarzan music. And at that time I hadn't found the MGM stuff. So it was like, okay, we've got a Tarzan score. I forget which one he did, Tarzan's Peril, who knows, mm. but he did one Tarzan movie back in the 40s or 50s. So drove down to the archive and the uh, archivist presented me with the score and he said, here's the Tarzan music. I looked at it. It was the hairy ape, which <laughs> like, it was William Bendix movie. And I said, this isn't Tarzan. He said, yeah, hairy ape. He's <laughs> a crazy Russian. Harry A. So that would have been great. You know, uh, Creature of the Black Lagoon and other jungle pictures. Yeah. The alligator people and the Harry A. <laughs> so we we have not discussed the theremin yet. Mm. David, what is your favorite uh, soundtrack that incorporates the use of the theremin? 
boy, there's a lot of them. Um, I actually kind of think uh, probably Rocket Ship XM by Ferdy Grofe, because I'm trying to think, was that the, it was the first, that was 1950. So that was before Day the Earth Stood Still. And the, mm-hmm. I like the thing too. Um, uh, and, you know, Day the Earth Stood Still, it came from outer space. Even what's the one where, um, oh, Phantom from Space, the, the, the mm. guy from outer space who wears underwear through the whole picture. There's <laughs> a little bit of theremin in there. But I think Rocket Ship XM, because it was the first and uh, really well done. They only use the theremin on the outer space sequences. You don't hear it in the uh, space sequences or the Earth sequences. Uh, it became a cliche. And when Herman Stein and uh, Henry Mancini and Hans Salter did this island earth in 1955 they wanted a spacey sound but all these things had become cliches electric violin the theremin etc etc so herman and his orchestrator david tampkin came up with this idea of how to create a theremin sound without actually using a theremin and i have no idea how they did it they're they're geniuses both of these guys but they somehow knew that if they had a vibraphone, which is like a xylophone, but it has a motor on it, and it creates a wah, 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 kind of reverby sound. If you had that, and then you had some cellos playing really low notes, somehow the sound waves would interact with each other from those two instruments and create a theremin sound. Hmm. I mean, we're talking, we're talking physics here. You know, we're talking science here. We're not talking... Uh, musicians playing an instrument they just came up with this in their head and when they actually had the orchestra do this it created that sound so people who hear this island earth they think there's a theremin in there there's no theremin in there that's like that's a vibraphone and celli and it's just amazing and getting that sound on our recording was really difficult because you know we we're just taking their word that it would work because herman said that's what we did so we're over in slovakia and, you know, the celli are doing this and the vibraphone is doing that. And what we hear is a celli doing this and a vibraphone doing that. And, you know, Katie and I looked at each other and went, oh, boy, we're in deep trouble here. And But it said, you know, loud. The celli had to play loud. So the celli played louder and faster and louder and faster. And all of a sudden, those two sounds disappeared and you heard, Ooh. I was like, oh, my God, these guys were geniuses. Wow. I, I always assumed it was theremin. I, I had no idea. Yeah, everyone who's written about the score has mentioned the use of the theremin. No, it's the use of Herman's brain. That, 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 <laughs> which is scarier than the brain from Planet Eris. Much more argumentative. Wow, that's an interesting tidbit. It's like a little, uh, little secret that we just got here on the podcast. That's cool. That is. I, I have another personal... Uh, question another uh, movie I, I really I, I'm the type of person when I watch a, a piece of film or, or television the music is almost like uh, another character uh, it, it sets the pace the ambiance and all that um, Doc Savage the Man of Bronze do you know if they've ever released a soundtrack for that film I, I have I, never been able I don't to find so. one I'm sorry. Uh, I, I was just saying I never uh, been able to find one. So. Yeah, no, I don't think so, and I don't know. I think maybe like two or three tracks might have come out. Mm. It was some compilation that I can't remember what label it was. Maybe about 15 years ago, did little bits and pieces from some of the George Powell things, and there may have been, you know. Sometimes in those cases, they put out a main and end title because they're not really getting it from any soundtrack reels. They're actually taking it off, you know, the, the print where there's mm-hmm. no dialogue and sound effects. So basically they had a laser disc and they just copied down the main title. And now I don't know if they did it in that case, but I, I seem to remember there were like a couple of cues from that picture, a couple of cues from Dr. Lau, a couple of cues from, you know, uh, maybe the time machine, that kind of thing. Right. But I don't believe a complete score ever came out. I don't even remember who wrote it. I don't, I, I know it was George Powell, one of the last films he worked on, but as far as who uh, composed or worked on the music, I could not tell you. Are you a fan of the movie or the music? Oh, definitely. I, I mean, it, it predates Indiana Jones and, and you know, Remo Williams and all those, uh, The Shadow, those films that came out in the 80s and early 90s that, that kind of were like the adventure 
you know, Persona, Doc Savage was the first one of the genre, I think. Uh, it just, you know. I remember I saw it once and there weren't any monsters in it and that turned me off. <laughs> well, that, but it had Ron Ely and that gets you back to Tarzan. The, it had the yeah, baby pig. Baby pig was kind of disturbing to me that the the one guy had, but the uh, the floating snakes. I remember that scared the bejesus out of me when I was a kid. Um, they they had some kind of a I don't know I don't even remember if it was a voodoo priest or whatever, and the snakes would float through the air and and just start biting the heck out of uh, whoever their target was. Yeah, as 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 scary as snakes can be, we have to be thankful on a daily basis that snakes can't fly. It would be <laughs> entirely different life. <laughs> Very you know? true. Well, it, it, through through the magic of the internet and internet movie database, Doc Savage was uh, Don Harris and John Philip Sousa. Oh, John Philip Sousa marches. actually did the theme music. <laughs> March of the Flying Snakes. That's right. There you go. <laughs> I guess Don Harris did the the main music, and John Philip Sousa did the theme. Yeah, the it's lyri- interesting lyrics that, by Don that Black. He, that he's John Philip Sousa marches. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder why um, Powell didn't, you know, use a more conventional film composer. I don't even know that composer. You know, it could have been studio pressure or something. Yeah, you know, that's true. or maybe he couldn't afford. I don't. I don't remember the score at all. So who's hanging around the back lot? Bring him in. I was thinking Flying Snakes. Uh, there needs to be a film called uh, Snake NATO, like that Shark NATO film or whatever. Or snakes, snakes fly a plane. Sna- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's an idea just waiting to happen. So besides the, uh, the soundtracks you put together, though, you've also done um, some essays. You've uh, co-written some books with... Tom Weaver. I know you have a lot to say about Tom, but maybe we shouldn't do that on the podcast. Um, <laughs> well, but, fortunately, fortunately, Tom doesn't know how to receive a podcast, so I could. You know, Tom's a really sweet guy. He's been a friend forever, but um, I make fun of him for his lack of internet skills, and um, and he comes up with these amazing ideas for projects to do, and then he pawns them off on all of his friends and say, "Well, you do this, you do that." I'm, I'm actually joking. Uh, I did three books with him, two of them. Well, I did more than three, but the, the big one was, the first one was The Creature Chronicles uh, by McFarland Publishing, and then the sequel to that, Universal Terrors Part 1, and we're already working on Part 2. Actually, it's oh, cool. almost done, but it's going to take another year or so to get together. But Tom does like 90% of the work, and then he farms out the bits and pieces, and he farmed the music out to me. Um, he loves the way I write about music because I kind of write write it for like three year olds who don't know too much about music. Because um, I have a like a four I have a four or five year old musical uh, sensibility. But no, I like to write about music so that most of the people who love these movies they don't know anything about music. And if you talk to them about dotted quarter notes or this, that, or the other thing, they don't know, they don't care, they don't know what a scherzo is, and you know they can go to their grave without ever knowing it. They're just as happy. So I try to write about the music from a dramatic point of view, like why did the composer use these instruments? Why did he use this form? Uh, because they know the movie. They don't know the music. And um, Tom likes that because Tom doesn't know music. So I kind of write in a way that people understand from that perspective. Sure. Uh, a, another story, um, when I've done conventions with, with Julie, I mean, you guys love music. That's wonderful that you're film music fans. But when I've done a number of uh, shows with Julie Adams and she'll have a line of 70 people stretched out to her all wanting her to sign creature this creature that and i'll be sitting right next door to her blasting you know rcd of creature from the black lagoon nobody notices the music they just they're just standing there staring at julie waiting for her signature you're definitely in the minority you know you would think that these people know this stuff just through repetition but they don't most of them you know you have to kind of tell them that there's music in the picture and it's funny because even like actors and actresses, they think that when an audience is crying or laughing at something they do, they think it's entirely due to their uh, their skills as an actor. It isn't. It's music's helping a lot. Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. The, the only the only person I ever knew uh, actor who was aware of music was Barbara Rush. 
and she loves classical music and opera and all that kind of stuff. And she knew about music and she was close friends with uh, Elmer Bernstein and a few other people that I knew. That's how she and I became friends. But none of the other actors or actresses, except for one, um, are aware that there's music in their picture. The other one was William <laughs> Shallard, who was in everything. You know, the, he was in Incredible Shrinking Man, The Monolith Monsters, Mighty Joe Young, on and on and on. Well, William started out as a pianist and he would play nightclubs. And he's actually in a, a few movies where he's playing piano, but he was an entertainer before he became an actor or while he was becoming an actor. And I remember one time I was at a convention and I brought in some scores for the movie Smoke Signal, a really neat Western that Universal did with Dana Andrews. And I was showing it to Piper Laurie who was uh, there. And I think I gave her one of the scores or something. Uh, I forget why I was bringing it in. But knowing that William Schaller was in the movie, I showed him the scores, and these are the orchestral scores with all the instruments, and he was singing and humming along while he was flipping the pages. I was like, wow, I had no idea. <laughs> the real, you know, professional musician. But 99.9% .9 of the actors in town think it's it's merely them and their, uh, you know, their skills that move people. Well, I mean, it's amazing because, you know, if you think about soundtrack music from, you know, let's say TV, like Star Trek or something, you hear the soundtrack music from back then and you can picture, you know, okay, this is where Kirk's fighting somebody or this is when, you know, the Enterprise is approaching a planet or whatever. These days, I, I don't know if any of the soundtrack music in the modern films really resonate or it's almost like it's more in the background. Are there any contemporary composers today that, that you admire, you know, as much or as the older ones? There are, there are a lot of composers that I like, but in, in some cases, I think they're, in many cases, they're told to create a certain kind of score. And, you know, they're influenced by temp tracks and things like that. I don't know if they get to put their personal imprint on things as much as in the past. You know, we're in, in the past, you could hear uh, three measures of Roja or Franz Waxman or certainly Bernard Herrmann or Tiomkin, and you would immediately know who wrote that music. Uh, even if you weren't familiar with it, because everyone had a style. I think we've lost style in, mm -hmm. in a lot of cases where it's, you know, it's so much more commercial product. So instead of somebody putting their personal uh, slant on something, they're told to write a typical superhero score or a typical this score, give us a Marvel score, give us a DC score. So I'm in the same boat you are, where I don't recognize, I don't have that recognition that I had in the past but it may be that younger people growing up with that will have that 20 years from now. I don't know. So many of the scores sound interchangeable to me these days. True. I mean, the only ones that would come to mind, I mean, obviously John Williams, but um, maybe like Michael Giacchino. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's people writing great music out there, but I don't like if you played me five scores by the same person, I might not know that they were mm -hmm. all by the same person. Right. I think maybe people have to be chameleons more these days. Who knows? There's Mark Snow. Uh, he did, mm -hmm. you know, the X-Files and stuff. There's, some There's a lot there. of talented people out there. Definitely. Uh, Ratha Khan, uh, Horner. Um, James Horner? James Horner, yeah. Oh, that's that's been a while, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, how contemporary you're is that? You're dating yourself now. <laughs> hey, I, I just saw it a couple of weeks ago at the uh, Cupertino. Uh, never mind. Pretty soon we'll be going to say, well, there's this guy, Bernard Herrmann. That, uh, well, John Williams. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's retired now, so I thought we were. Yeah, but he, I mean, he's still he's scoring the new Star Wars, isn't he? No, I think he retired. I think he... Well, I don't know. I, uh, guess I think he's doing. Yeah. I think Somebody he's doing can nine Google it and, and let us it, know. But I can't remember the name of the guy, but the the uh, guy who does the new uh, the theme for Star Trek Discovery, I, oh. I really like that theme. That's that's um, a good one too. They have some nice music on that show. And the, the Godzilla films. What's the name of that guy? That uh. Well, Ifukube passed away <laughs> years ago. I know. And and I I uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Mishiro Oshima. Oshima, yeah, yeah. She she did some great scores for them. She's a really really talented composer. Oh my goodness, mm. I would love to have. She's a Facebook friend. Uh, right. I don't know if she understands a word I write or if I understand. <laughs> it, but she's a really. But really you can talented say. Lady. 
Yeah, no, she, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, she scored some of the Godzilla films in the 2000s, like uh, Tokyo SOS and Godzilla uh -huh. against Mechagodzilla and yeah, et cetera. So, but yeah, I mean, she definitely seemed like the heir apparent there for a while, but mm -hmm. now they've gone off into different directions and all that, but. Well, boys and girls, this is the part in the podcast where we get to our sensor sweep. And since we're fortunate enough to have David here with us today, we're going to turn over the sensor sweep to you, sir. So uh, please share with us something miraculous and amazing that, that uh, you, you would please. Um, besides the fact that I'm semi-conscious before three in the afternoon, which is pretty miraculous. Um, can can I tout something? Please do. Of course. Okay, I will tout. Um, I've been where you had mentioned Tom Weaver earlier, and Tom has gotten me involved in a bunch of projects that are fun to do. And it's kind of similar to our um, the books that we've done, Creature Chronicles and the Universal Terror books and some of the other stuff, where they're releasing a lot of these classic science fiction films on Blu-ray, and they look absolutely stunning, mm. uh, which is really, really exciting. But I'm happy that the, uh, the, the companies putting them out, like Kino Lorber and Shout, uh, they are not just doing the bare bones stuff. So they're doing really nice commentaries, and Tom is getting a bunch of people to help him. And I was fortunate enough to be asked to do music commentaries. And it's, it's kind of fun because you take a different approach than you do when writing about it. So these are, uh, I had to do like something like five or six just in the last month or so. And they're coming out over the next month or three. And some of the ones we've done are Tarantula, The Mole People, The Land Unknown, um, The Strange Door, and a bunch of others. I can't even remember. There one after the other. I get done with one and then Tom has another one for me to do. But those will be coming out and they look glorious uh, and it'll be fun. And I, I love listening to Tom's commentary. He talks nine times faster than a hockey announcer. <laughs> and when you're done watching the movie, you have learned so much about the picture that makes it fun watching it, actually. Like there's this one shot in Tarantula I never knew where they're like running towards the Tarantula uh, as it's coming down the road after being dynamited. And one of the uh, persons forgot to take off his sunglasses from an earlier scene, which I've seen the movie a thousand times, never noticed that. And he's like running towards the spider and all of a sudden he turns around so he can take his glasses off uh, and nobody can see him. And then he turns around without his glasses. It's just classic stuff. And, you know, Jack Arnold, nobody caught that apparently. And uh, it's fun. It doesn't take you... It doesn't wreck the movie. It, it makes it more enjoyable. So, well, so I would you. just, you know, I'd like to hawk those things because, uh, you know, keep these movies alive. Share them with your kids and your grandchildren and uh, keep the spirit going about classic sci-fi horror and that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for, for sharing. Uh, we had a lot of fun with you today. Uh, hope to have you on again sometime in the future. There's a ton of stuff we'd still like to, to get into. And um, we look forward to uh, meeting up with you again here on Planet 8. Stand by for mind control. From the land beyond beyond, Bay Area Film Events and Cinema SF present the Dimension Celebration. A weekend of films by special effects titan Ray Harryhausen. March 1st through March 3rd at the historic Balboa Theater in San Francisco. See Cyclops, Dragons, Kraken, Centaurs, Skeletons, and more. Guest of Honor, Ray's daughter, Vanessa Harryhausen. Beer sales throughout the weekend go to benefit the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. 11 movies and plenty of surprises over three days. For tickets and information, go to www.bayareafilmevents.com. On that note, this will conclude this transmission from Planet 8. We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at www.planet8podcast.blogspot.com 
where you can get more information on this episode's topic. For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet8Cast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash planet8podcast. We want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode. We look forward to your input and opinions. Until next time, this is Planet 8 signing off. End transmission. By George, he's got it. It is the end. Thank <laughs> you.